Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And in this episode, Phil Maffetone and Paul Larson join me in discussing the controversial topic of body fat. In fact, their new paper on this topic is published today at the time of this episode in the scientific journal called Frontiers. And I'm honored to share with you the very first coverage of it. Um, We jump right into the discussion, so I'll give you a quick bio ahead of time for Phil and Paul right here. Phil is a doctor who has been practicing for over 20 years and has worked with famous musicians like Johnny Cash, James Taylor, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He's also worked with Olympians, NASCAR drivers, and Ironman world champions such as Mark Allen. Um, And he's considered a pioneer in the biofeedback industry with over 20 books published in related topics, and including the first book on heart monitoring in the 1980s and barefoot running in the 1990s. Uh, Paul Larson has been on the show before in episode six. You heard him with the Plues and Prof. He is the prof in that duet. And Paul is a doctor of exercise physiology with dozens if not hundreds of published papers relating to sport performance and health. He's an endurance athlete and also coaches elite endurance athletes as well. Um, And he makes heavy use of technology and data in his coaching and in his uh, practice. And as a university professor in Auckland, New Zealand, he worked with the New Zealand Olympic squads, and is also at the forefront of heart rate variability research. Um, A quick heads up, there was an issue with the recording of Paul's audio. I'm sure my HRV dropped when I discovered it because he has a lot of great things to say, and we tried really hard. We tried our best to clean it up as much as possible, but a few spots are pretty rough still. Um, So... I apologize in advance for that. The rest of it is very clean and clear, um, and I encourage you to stick through all of that for all the great points that are covered in this episode. So now, um, let's get ready to feel a little different in our own skin as we dive into the nitty-gritty of the obesity and overfat pandemic in Paul and Phil's new paper that was published today. So welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm really excited today to have Phil Maffetone and Paul Larson. Uh, and Phil, I believe, is currently in the Arizona area. Paul's coming from New Zealand uh, with us today, actually for a limited time, because I believe uh, he's be, he'll be moving to Canada very soon. So uh, Phil, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Great to, to be here. And, and also, thanks for having us uh, uh, on the show. Yep. Thanks, Jason. I I really appreciate it. And uh, I also appreciate the opportunity for both of you all to give first coverage of your potentially controversial paper that is set to be published today at the time of this, that this episode is published. And it's titled Overfat and Underfat, New Terms and Definitions Long Overdue. 
And uh, so that kind of gives people a flavor of what we're going to be talking about today. And let's start with some of the basics first. Uh, what does the term overfat actually mean? And how is that different from overweight in general? Well, you know, clinically, um, which I, I look at it from a clinical standpoint and from a standpoint of how, how can we help patients, that's the clinician's ultimate goal. Um, we look at overfat as being a condition where there's excess body fat to the point where it impairs their health. And that's different from overweight because someone who's overweight may or may not be overfat. Most, most people who are overweight are overfat. Uh, likewise, um, with obesity, it, it, if in someone who's obese, they're probably overfat. They probably have too much fat, but not necessarily. And more importantly, people who are not overweight and not obese can also be overfat. And that's one of the the very important observations we made in the paper that there, there is a, um, a very large population around the world that's over fat that is not obese or overweight. So that's, it's a very important distinction. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And we're going to dive into a, a lot more details on that. And as similarly, though, what is the term under fat and how is that different from being underweight? You know, when, when underfat comes up, we have to emphasize something that we could em emphasize also with the overfat condition, but it's that body fat plays a very strong role in our hormonal system, in our metabolism. It's really an endocrine organ, um, and, and it should be looked at that way. So if we lose too much body fat, it can impair our our health via uh, metabolism, via um, other, other components of the body that we rely on to, to be healthy. And of course, starvation is, is a very common example, but those numbers are coming down around the world. Um, a, a more uh, uh, common example is something we see in people who overexercise. Uh, we see it in athletes who overtrain, and they actually get to the point where their body fat levels get too low, and it becomes part of the overtraining syndrome in terms of um, uh, contributing to poor health and therefore poor performance. The, the key gist, really, is is that is that we're, we you know I don't know how we how we got off track. We we get off track in so many different areas, you know, um, in in. In various different things, whether we're talking about hydration or whether we're talking about um, macronutrients, but somehow this this one we we started talking about meat when when we really should have just called a spade a spade and really started focusing um, on on fat, which is the central um, thing that you want to get balanced right relative to the other tissues of of the body. So, um, and this is you know kind of. Uh, you see this even today with um, our our obsession with the bathroom scale. You know, I see this all the time in the sports field um, with you know good friends as well, good physiologists that um, we just have this uh, this habit of really focusing on the weight, and we really don't look at the other things that are of, of key importance, and that is the fat. Um, as because as Phil alluded to, is this is the this is the endocrine organ that is is of importance for for our good metabolic health. Yeah, it's a it, it's a good point. Um, 
Paul, in terms of the the trends of of using weight rather than fat, um, and I, I suspect I suspect there are commercial trends that helped move that process along way back in the '60s and '70s, um, mainly um, because I've been using the term over fat. I think my whole career, certainly in the in the nineteen seventies, late seventies, I was using it. Um, I remember the first time I saw it in print. It was early on, early on in nineteen eighty. There was a study I read where they um, they they used uh, hydrostatic weighing, where you get into a pool of water and you exhale, and they weigh you to determine how much body fat you have. And they showed that, and they used the the term overfat in quotations, like they were afraid to use it. And they showed that these overfat people had uh, a much worse profile of um, serum cholesterol and triglycerides, uh, regardless of their um, their weight, if I remember correctly. Um, but but I think what's happened and I've I've always been interested in these trends and why they happen and I think one of the things is that weight is a much softer sell to the public than fat certainly back then much less now but certainly back then the term fat was was condescending it, it was it was insulting and I remember getting letters this is before the internet uh, from readers uh, of my books and articles who were insulted that that they felt I was calling them fat because I talked about over fat. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think we're getting away from that. I, I hope we're getting away from that, although you still see organizations that are out there that, you know, were, uh, that are accepting of fat. There's, there's psychological type organizations where um, you know, if you're a member, you're saying, "Hey, we're accepting our um, overfat condition, uh, and and uh, and so the world is okay." Uh, I have, you know, and even in in healthcare, we we tend to talk about the um, the overfat healthy person. I, I think that's um, an unfortunate situation. I think they're just seeing a person who's on their way to being overfat and unhealthy. They're just young enough right. and they're, they're not showing uh, whatever parameters are being used to say they're healthy. They're not showing any abnormalities yet, but give it, give it a little bit of time and there they will be most likely. Yeah, and, and I, I can actually specifically relate to that last point that you made just because being an athlete growing up, um, and I've told Paul this and I've mentioned it on the show before, um, I had trouble uh, maintaining muscle mass and even improving my performance. Um, and I thought I was eating healthy, though uh, now I know otherwise. And um, there was other issues like brain fog and sluggishness that were associated with it. But since mm. I was young and really active, um, you know, outwardly I appeared like 
perfect and I was on, on all the normal measures I was perfect for everything it was just it wasn't until later in my early 20s when I discovered a different way of eating and a different way of addressing my health that I was really I kind of awakened to the possibilities um, fortunately I caught it early um, so nothing terrible uh, well that's debatable but <laughs> nothing terrible uh, nothing permanent so far <laughs> we're all on our various journeys and I yeah I certainly have not done some things right and from the from the diet standpoint um we know what we know and we know what um uh based on the the various influencers and and uh, education that's around us Jason um but then I was also just going to uh yeah just echo Phil's comments with respect to the sensitivity of the topic and what we're trying to kind of communicate in the in the paper and the sensitive topic with respect to it being used to, as a bullying term on the playground I think I do recall that you know as as a youth um but but yeah, we we've got to forever to make strides forward with this you know um, pandemic as 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 we're describing. We've got to call a spade a spade and um, and get our get our head around this new term. Right. Yeah, we're 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 talking about science here. You know, imagine if if we were still or imagine if we we were calling the Earth's moon a planet and then they discovered that it, well, it's not a planet, it's really a moon. But they never said, let's call it a, a moon because that's what it is, and we just keep calling it a planet. That, that's kind of silly, and that's, and that's why I think there's, there's, um, there's some, what I'd call a hidden agenda from a, a marketing standpoint that's been longstanding, that has really prevented over fat from being used it's prevented the fat term from being used in a in a positive way really um and and in place overweight which is an easier sell um for the weight loss industry for example for uh products that uh are and services that are made uh for even you know even back in the 70s and 80s it was a pretty good sized market and that market has only quadrupled since then so um, I, I think that's a that's a, a key thing so if, if we're going to be scientific let's be scientific and you know and it yes this is a sensitive topic and it's interesting that we we got a comment from one of the reviewers about this he he commented or she um, that we were, I don't remember the term, Paul, but he, the, the comment had to do with the style of writing. We seemed to be very careful and we, we were being aware that this is a sensitive issue and he, he didn't like it. I, you know, whether it was he wanted us to be more blunt or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But it's a very sensitive topic and um, I, I don't want to get any more of those letters. Um, <laughs> people it's it's very important that we be very clear very straightforward but be sensitive to the population that's going to be in transition uh they're not going to say i'm overweight anymore they're going to say i'm over fat and let's let's do that gently yes and and i think that like many people listening right now this is probably a very personal subject for everyone um and at the same time of being sensitive, we also need to recognize, like you said, that 
what the actual issue is. Like uh, Paul, as you mentioned, call a spade a spade. And the title of the paper itself says that these terms are long overdue. And, you know, when I was digging into it, you're absolutely right. I was surprised to learn that 39 to 49% of the world's population are considered overweight or obese. And that's huge. But that number is then actually dwarfed by the 62 to 76% or the 4.5 to 5.5 billion people that are considered overfat by your proposed definition in the paper. And so, like I was saying, uh, you know, this is everybody knows somebody that's dealing with this. Um, many of the people listening to the show are probably have some sort of um, condition related to just percentage-wise, just going off the numbers. Although, no, I take that back. Everybody who listens to this show is different. But no, <laughs> um, the, the paper goes on to cite how the World Health Organization's estimate uh, for the United States is around 66% obese and overweight. And Paul, just to share kind of like a personal, uh, you know, how this is personal for me is the day that you reached out to me about this paper, I had just emailed 27 adult members of my extended family. Um, yeah, I have, I have a big family. And um, I realized when I sent that email that well over 66% of them have some sort of issue with overfatness. And that there's a whole host of other issues present in the family as well, from cancer to diabetes, skin disease, and more. And I love my family, and I'm sure that some of them will listen to this. So uh, if you're listening, you're you're in the other percent. Um, but um, no, it's a serious issue, and it, it is very sensitive. And um, so that's just my family alone, well over 66% um, of the adults in my family. Yeah, and so, I'll just uh, I'll just echo there, Jason. With you know, um, my my friends and family um, don't uh, you know they would be similar in terms of uh, you know these these percentages, and it's just this is these aren't, aren't I don't think they're that far off. This is this is reality. This is the world that we're that we're in right now, and um, we've got to be aware of this so we can start to make steps towards doing something about it. Yeah, you know, and it, it, and we're not talking about an overfat condition that is unsightly. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a really big picture that has to do with chronic disease. This is what the overfat condition is associated with. And, and we didn't get into this in the paper, but when we look at the healthcare situation today, We've got a very serious problem. We're we're spending money in the U.S. in 2015 uh, over three trillion dollars just in one year. Uh, where's that going to go um, in 2016? It's going to it's going to increase significantly. Um, can we keep spending that much money? Can countries keep spending this massive amount of money because um, the overfat epidemic in in any given area of the world is rapidly increasing? Um, the problem is that there's a very strong relationship between overfat and chronic diseases from a, from a causational standpoint. Uh, body fat increases in body fat uh, lead to chronic, low-grade chronic inflammation, 
and insulin resistance. And now you've got this domino effect of one thing causing another, causing another. And then the end stage would be a chronic disease like cancer, heart disease, uh, Alzheimer's, stroke, um, you know, the diseases that most people in the Western world especially die from, diabetes. Um, and, and if we trace the, the cause of that problem, we end up coming back to the overfat state. Um, and, and again, when they talk about these diseases as being preventable, um, overfat itself is preventable. So uh, we, we, we have to look at that and, and get away from this idea that, you know, look at all these overfat people, boy, how unsightly can, that's what people think. They think I've got too much body fat, it's unsightly. Period. And I, I could almost guarantee you that people who are not over fat are just as obsessed with body fat in most cases as people who are over fat. Right. Because the, the commercial mess is, is such, right? I mean, that's what we're filled with every day. You're on the television, or you're, you're picking up magazines. Um, there is, you know, there's the, the constant focus on that aesthetic, but it's, it's not about that, right? That's that's just um, that's not the thing that we should be kind of we should be focusing on. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Paul, just to add to what you just said, is that kind of it goes back to my my situation when I was young. Is that from from the outside, I I you know you could see my abs. I was working out a couple hours a day because I was an athlete, um, and I when I did a DEXA scan. Um, towards the end of that period, uh, it was obvious that I had uh, more body fat than was apparent than if you were looking at me from like a frontal view of my torso. Um, and I had uh, was carrying more than average for a young male around my midsection and my hips and in my organ uh, areas, which we'll, we'll probably talk about more later. Um, but real quick, um, what I want to do is summarize some of what we've just been talking about and the sense that um, we're not focusing on aesthetics as much like Paul said. And also um, when we're talking about this, you know, between friends and family, it probably doesn't matter as much what terminology uses. It's actually uh, the in the clinic or in research or from doctor to doctor to doctor or doctor to patient, it might be more important to use the correct terms because, and this is kind of almost straight from your paper, is that measuring adipose tissue tends to better predict risk for symptomology of being over fat than measuring body weight. And the symptomology of being over fat is also found in populations who do not fit the body weight based criteria of obesity. Um, and so then that leads on to talk about, uh, BMI and how that's kind of one of the commonly used methods of measurement and, uh, what, what we've found and um, what we're all interested in is using the right terminology, uh, better enables us to focus on the right metrics and the right, uh, treatments, so to speak for, uh, measuring the condition that we're talking about. Is that correct? I don't know if that was kind of full circle. Well, yeah, well put, a well put summary. Thank you. Yeah, no, so that's great. So um, I have, 
uh, questions on all these different topics. So why don't we start with, uh, Phil, you mentioned several diseases that are kind of associated with overfatness. Uh, what in general diseases are you talking about there? <clears throat> all of the cardiovascular disease, so not just um, heart disease, but you know, blood vessel related diseases, uh, stroke being, um, you know, the big one and heart attacks um, uh, as well being two of the, the bigger ones. Cancer, um, you know, and when, when we think of cancer in particular, but some of these other conditions as well, people say, well, you know, isn't there a, a strong genetic component? Sure, probably about 5% of the cancers uh, have genetic origins, um, but for the most part, uh, cancer, like cardiovascular diseases, um, are considered preventable, which means our lifestyle has an impact and we can choose uh, to have a different lifestyle thereby. Um, pre prevention is not a good word. What we're really doing is postponing by, by having a healthier lifestyle. And so instead of having um, a diagnosis of cancer or having a heart attack at age um, 55, we postpone that process until we're 105 or 110 um, and, and therefore uh, maintain a much higher quality of life, a much better functional status for those additional years. But um, diabetes, uh, of course, primarily we're talking about type 1 diabetes, but something hidden in there with type uh, I'm sorry, type 2 diabetes, something hidden in there about the, the type 1, um, but that's another discussion. So, uh, w you know, we've got, we've got explosions uh, around the world in these conditions. Uh, type 2 diabetes is, is exploding, and now if you start saying, well, we've got this category now of pre-diabetes, well, that really makes this condition um, and the seriousness of it because of the numbers uh, looks looks so significant. Um, uh, Alzheimer's, and it's not just Alzheimer's, but all the cognitive dysfunction that uh, we see. Many people that are um, unable to care for themselves uh, because of uh, brain dysfunction. Um, preventable, for the most part. Um, reversible, uh, in many cases, yes. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of chronic disease, chronic disease as a category, um, you know, has many, I mean, things like macular degeneration and, and kidney disease, a lot of these things fit into there and, and um, are uh, part of what we're, we're talking about. Um, Lifestyle-related conditions that um, have, as, as a common denominator, low-grade chronic inflammation early in the process. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and along those same lines are, is over fatness. And we're, again, I want to reiterate to the listeners, we're not talking about being morbidly obese necessarily. Um, as I mentioned from my personal example, I had fat kind of in areas that were seemingly not that visible. Um, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about people who can still be thin, but have conditions of overfatness. Is that correct? Sure. That's a, that's a big part of it. And a lot of times when, when I could guarantee you when, when a lot of uh, clinicians or other people look at the title uh, and look at what we're talking about and look at 
up to 76% of the world is overfat? Oh, that can't be. Because I look around and I don't see that many overfat people. And you mentioned the pie chart earlier, and you know the pie chart shows shows that um, up to forty nine percent of the world is obese and overweight, but up to seventy six percent of the world is overfat. So there's there's a a lot of people who are normal weight and not obese who are overfat. The fat is well hidden around the organs and glands, for example, in the belly. Um, in the you know, as we age, fat doesn't turn. I'm oh, sorry, uh, muscle doesn't turn to fat. But as we age, we often see people losing fat. Um, sorry, I got to get my my terms correct here. At, with aging, we see we see a lot of people uh, lose muscle mass. They lose lean tissue, um, and in that process, also um, the the problem of added fat comes into play. So these people are losing muscle and adding fat. And there is a long-standing term for this called sarcopenic obesity. So they have sarcopenia, but their buildup of fat is significant enough to be referred to as, as obese. They don't look fat. They don't look obese. Um, but the, the high levels of body fat that impair the metabolism that impair health are certainly there. Wow. And so, yeah, just to summarize again, that sarcopenia is the muscle loss or lean tissue loss. And then sarcopenic obesity is not necessarily someone blowing up size-wise. It's more about the sense that they're undergoing muscle loss and at the same time gaining fat. And so uh, size-wise may not be too much difference, but they, the ratio of adipose tissue to lean tissue is changing. Is that right? Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, and so real quick, we mentioned a few, what kind of areas around the body can fat be stored? Is, and we've already kind of mentioned it's not always visible to the outside observer, but which different areas well, certainly the, the fat under the skin, the superficial fat, is, is more, more visible to people. But uh, even if we don't have that, we could have the fat deep inside uh, around organs and glands, for example, where it's not noticeable. Um, what, what is more noticeable today than even 10, 15 years ago is the abdominal obesity, the abdominal fat levels that... Um, appear to be growing uh, throughout the world in people who tend to be, quite often, they tend to be lean. And, and of course, they tend to be, like we said, um, a normal weight and non-obese um, when they're measured. But their, their abdominal fat is relatively high, high enough to, again, impair health. Uh, and fat that accumulates in the abdomen is particularly harmful to our health because of the metabolic relationships that that exist. Right. Yeah, definitely. I can think of plenty of examples of people that I know who are not really that large of people, but there's definitely an accumulation around the midsection. And a lot, a lot of times this is called, um, you know, beer belly or wheat belly or gluten belly, um, whatever it is. But uh, I'll kind of uh, saying that too is overfatness 
uh, a root cause or is it generally correlated with these um, lifestyle diseases or is it uh, just an exacerbator or maybe you could just give a brief overview of that. I, I think overfat comes first because from, from that overfat condition, w one of the things that happens is we, we develop this low-grade chronic inflammation which they've known for a long time is a precursor for chronic diseases. Um, so the overfat condition comes first. Um, and of course, we're not talking about every single individual, but certainly most people, uh, that's, that's the pattern. But overfat doesn't just happen. We don't wake up one day and we're overfat uh, despite having a perfect lifestyle. We become overfat. Um, because we don't have a good lifestyle. And um, we, can, we can talk about all the lifestyle factors associated with this, but uh, certainly, and, and this is not something we did in the paper because it wasn't that kind of a paper, but I've been writing about you know, what causes this overfat epidemic my whole career. And one of the primary things is refined carbohydrates. And the, right. the reason refined carbohydrates contribute so much is because refined carbohydrates increases our insulin, and insulin causes us to convert a, a lot of that carbohydrate that we eat into stored body fat. Um, and that insulin also, also turns off our fat-burning mechanism. We no longer burn as much fat for energy, and therefore we're not tapping into our fat stores as much. Uh, and insulin actually does something else that's very interesting, which is it, it, can, it can change the way we store fat. So if we're storing fat all over the body and uh, we may not look like we're overfat or we, we may not appear like we're, we're too overfat, but what insulin can do is, is it can take those fat stores around the body and uh, change our body so that more of that fat is stored in our belly, for example. Uh, which is a more serious condition. So refined carbohydrates can can um, can and I think have created this massive worldwide pandemic. And one of the things that I'm you know, I'm seeing also affects your blood glucose response, and then your your associated insulin, as Phil said, what is is things like stress, um, things like poor sleep, um, you know, and so you yeah, you throw these. A, a high refined carbohydrate um, uh, diet, you've, you've really got um, um, an issue there with uh, the low grade inflammation and the overfat. And there's also a, there's also a, 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 an exercise component in in you know in the people around the world who are exercising. Um, many of them are overtraining, whether they're competitive athletes or not. They're going out and they're exercising in a way, in a no pain, no gain way, that is counterproductive to fat burning. So they're, and, and many of them, and I've seen these patients for years, uh, when I had my clinic, they would come in and they'd say, I, you know, I spend X amount of time a day and a week exercising and I'm burning a lot of calories, yet I've still got all this fat. And I, I say, you, you're burning what kind of calories? And now they're totally confused. Uh, and I have to explain that when they exercise, they're burning both fat and sugar calories, 
but they really want to train their body to burn more fat calories. Otherwise, they become a, 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 a sugar burner and they don't burn as much fat. And of course, if you're not burning fat, the body stores it. That's, that's what it's supposed to do. So um, the over-exercise, over-training condition is, is a big part of that as well. Yeah, that's huge. And and that's uh, a recurring theme kind of on the show is that when we, uh, coming back to what you said earlier, Phil, about having a genetic component to some of this stuff is some people um, really couch a lot of this into that uh, genetic argument, but really it kind of comes back to epigenetics and the expression of your genes. And yeah, you can be genetically predisposed predisposed to this or that, but your lifestyle choices as far as sleep, as far as nutrition, as far as stress management goes, um, all of that kind of contributes to the expression of your genes and uh, also to the endocrine system regulation of your hormones. And like Paul was mentioning, uh, when people are stressed out, um, you know, maybe they didn't get a good night's sleep, but they don't have a choice. They have to get up and go to work tomorrow. Um, you do that once, it's probably not a big deal. You do that all the time. Um, then you're starting to really cut into your body's ability to recover. Add on top of that a bunch of endurance training, uh, upping the stress levels there. Um, add on top of that a bunch of chronically elevated insulin and cortisol, um, from excess refined carbohydrate intake. <laughs> and then uh, you really start the wheel spinning. Um, and the, the good news is, though, is it, it kind of gets like doom and gloom when we talk about all of the different things that could be really contributing to this. But the good news is, is that if there are so many lifestyle factors that contribute, that means there are also that many areas that we can start working on and improving. Um, you're 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 so right, and you know the the problem. I, I remember one of my first patients um, was a, a an executive uh, uh, on Wall Street, and and he came in, and I, you know, I, I kind of gave him the rundown after I evaluated him, and I said, look, you you know, uh, you can change all this. You're feeling really bad, and your your you know uh, your disease your disease risk is very high but you can change it all and here's what you need to do. And I went through all the exercise related stuff and I said, look, you, you, you know, I know you're not smoking a whole lot, but you've got to quit. And he was having three martini lunches. I said, you can't, you know, you can't do that. And then I started talking about diet and this, you know, the carbohydrates and the proteins and here's how you got to balance your fats, blah, blah, blah. And I never saw him again. Uh, you know, I freaked him out. Wow. Um, so people need to understand that it isn't that complicated. Um, and a lot of my presentations uh, when I lecture uh, are about this. Look at all these lifestyle factors and how they impact us. But what can we do? I, I, I don't want to be overwhelmed. I want to know what I can do. Okay, well, here's one thing you can do. Just one thing. Can you do one thing? Sure. Everybody can do one thing. Get rid of refined carbohydrates. Period. How simple can it be? Sure, I know many people are addicted to sugar. Uh, get over it. I, I, I was too. Um, it's not an easy thing, but, but that's the one thing that will change this pie chart that you're going to have in your notes and reduce the, the levels of overfat 
in the population. It's it's the one thing that any any listener can just take away from this podcast and say, okay, uh, right now today, I'm I'm not eating any refined carbohydrates. And and by the way, a lot of people say, oh, I don't I don't eat junk food. I can guarantee um, that that almost everyone, especially if you're eating out, especially if you're traveling, you're buying packaged foods, and you're looking for the whole grain name on the label, that's junk food. Um, uh, the hidden sugars, the processed flours, um, people are eating large amounts of junk food. And um, getting rid of that is the one change that can uh, make... It's so significant a change that um, if you start today... By tomorrow, you would have had measurable changes in your metabolism. So it doesn't take long. And, um, you know, so let's, let's look at prioritizing what we have to do with our lifestyle, not be overwhelmed by all the, you know, the things that we might have to do. We start with the most important. I just recorded another podcast with a health coach named Alex Fergus, um, who's getting a lot of um, good traction with his coach online coaching business. And one of the things that he spoke about in that episode is that, uh, incremental change is so key to, um, getting his clients results. And like you all are both just mentioning, focusing on one thing at a time and building on that. And, um, then that kind of leads me to this back to the paper, which is that, um, calling a spade a spade is actually really the first step before you can even take action is to understand that it's, it's near impossible to make any change if you're unaware of what the real situation is. And so this is the main reason that we, like so many others, like HRV as a metric, um, because it brings awareness to the systemic condition. It says, hello, uh, you know, something's not right. And, um, and then we know not only to dig deeper, but we also have an appropriate guide for measuring progress. And similarly, uh, instead of just saying that somebody is overweight or underweight or their BMI is off, um, looking at the actual fat mass and the location of that fat mass gives you better awareness as to what the situation might actually be and provides you something more accurate to track to see if progress is being made. So if you are to eliminate um, processed carbohydrates, you know, depending on your situation, your weight may or may not change too much. I mean, you may gain a little muscle, lose a little fat, weight, weight not, might not change much. But if you have an accurate picture of fat levels, um, then you might be able to see some measurable progress actually in a short period of time. Um, aside from kind of the intangible benefits of feeling better and having more energy and all of that stuff. Um, so just wanted to add. Yeah. That. And you know, the, 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 it's the brain that really plays such a dominant role in all of this. So if we overexercise or overtrain as an athlete, if we're eating refined carbohydrates, if we're, we're driving through rush hour traffic and, um, and, you know, and being exposed to other, other stresses, it's our brain that has to respond. And it does that 
by manipulating the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So we, we have an autonomic response and we end up typically with too much sympathetic and too little parasympathetic. And, and that becomes, you know, one thing after another, that domino effect where one stress triggers another and then another and eventually we get signs and symptoms of, of um, poor health uh, and, or poor fitness. And, um, and that brain is, is, is really, uh, you know, that's, that's the conductor of, of our orchestra. So um, people, people need to understand that that's a, a, big, a big part of this. And you all mentioned in the paper that adipose tissue, it plays such a large role in endocrine function that some authors, which are cited in the paper as well, present that it could be considered an endocrine organ itself. So, um, you know, just so everyone who's listening is on the same page, the endocrine system, as we've mentioned, it's a collection of all the glands and everything that produce hormones and regulate metabolism, growth, development, tissue function, sexual function, sleep, mood, all these things um, are affected by the endocrine system. And it's interesting to hear that adipose tissue actually um, influences the endocrine system or even could be considered part of it by some research. So real quick, I had a note as well, because um, this kind of leads me into that whole discussion. You're your recent paper, another paper that you all both recently published together, was titled Athletes Fit But Unhealthy. And that talks a lot about the HPA axis, which um, which we're referring to the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal-gland complex. And um, that's also a major neuroendocrine system, and it plays a huge role in uh, reactions to stress, regulating things like digestion, the immune system all the things that we just mentioned. And can the HPA axis or, or dysregulation of that contribute to the issues that are associated with overfatness? Oh, it sure can. It, it's, it, it plays a dominant role uh, without a doubt. Um, and, you know, once we start seeing excess fat being stored, um, that vicious cycle is something we have to, we have to break, and the sooner we break it, the better. And what better way to do it than to make some changes in our lifestyle, getting rid of um, uh, junk food, for example, which will have an immediate, it really just takes two meals to have an impact on that HPA axis. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that HPA access is such an important thing. And there, you know, we have this um, HPA access that is often used uh, in the discussion about physical, biochemical, and mental, emotional stresses. But we have other um, hormonal control mechanisms. We have a hypothalamic pituitary thyroid access, hypothalamic pituitary ovary access, and, and so forth. So there's there's a lot of these mechanisms that um, allow the brain to control the body from a, um, an endocrine standpoint, from a hormonal standpoint. And yeah, the, the overfat condition is, is um, a big part of that. Thanks, Phil. That's, that's powerful information. So we've talked about um, awareness and, and measuring the right thing and calling a spade a spade. So what are 
the effective ways that we should measure body fat. I mean, we mentioned that BMI, which is height to weight ratio, is not necessarily the most useful. Scale weight is not necessarily the most useful. What are useful methods of measuring body fat? Well, we could we could answer that question two ways. One, clinically, which I'll 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 mention um, right now, and then maybe Paul can mention uh, how do we do that from a research standpoint. One of the what are the accurate uh, measures that that are being used today, and in a in a world uh, technological world where things uh, new new gadgets are coming at us uh, almost daily. Um, for me, the the one of the very important questions to ask a patient, uh, whether they are overfat or not, or whether I'm not sure they're overfat or not, and and you know I, I should note that the observation by clinicians of patients is is one of the foundations of assessments assessment, and we we you know we have to get over this idea that. Um, you know, we 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 need to have precise measurements, and if we can't have precise measurements, we're not going to measure anything, and that's kind of silly. And um, uh, in in the clinical situations, I want to know from this patient whether they've had to buy new clothes in the last five years, the last ten years, twenty years. Um, I used to ask, "Is your waist?" Um, different than when you graduated high school. Uh, I don't ask that anymore because the, 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 the incidence of, of overfat um, in, in children is, is, has become a significant problem. So many people are graduating high school with uh, very large waists. Um, but uh, at one time, as this overfat epidemic, this pandemic has, has evolved in the last 40 years, um, in the beginning, you know, people were graduate. I didn't know there was one overfat person in my high school class of two hundred and forty, I think, um, in in the sixties. And so, um, things have changed, but we we need to be able to to have some indication that's that's easily um, uh, measured in a clinical situation and something that we can give the patient to measure because we don't want them getting on the scale and we need to educate them about the difference between weight which is a measure of water more and fat which is um, which is body fat storage and um, so looking at the at at clothing size is a, is a, a really good uh, way to to help assess the situation, and then more specifically, and over the years we've had um, uh, waist to hip ratios and other measurements. And today, uh, one of the best measures is waist circumference, the the measurement around at the level of the belly button around the the, the body, and um, so we can we can do that, and we can then say to the patient. Uh, as you're going through these these lifestyle changes, as you as you're getting rid of um, junk food, um, measure your waist once a month. Throw your scale away because we don't care what your weight is. Um, see how your waist uh, changes, and and indeed before that month is up, many of them 
uh, notice that their clothes are fitting looser. It doesn't take that long. Um, so these are, you know, these are the, the very real, uh, very common, very clinical, very um, here's what everyone can do at home kind of things that are, are quite simple. We don't have to come up with a number in terms of body fat percentage, for example, um, in these clinical situations. Uh, for one thing, we don't have clear numbers to use. There are some general ranges that are out there that we could use, but uh, um, and maybe Paul could talk to that as well. In addition to the uh, the equipment that's out there, that's that's nice. So, you know, I remember, I think it was 1981 when I started having a, a guy who had a fitness center come into my office every I don't know two three times a year, and he had a portable hydrostatic device. And he, he would bring it in, put it together, we'd fill it with water. It would take half a day to fill it with water. And, you know, people would sign up to come in and have their body fat measured. It was, it was kind of neat. I, I wish I had saved all that data, but I didn't. Um, but, you know, most clinicians don't have that available. I, I just don't think it's necessary. But when we do research, when we're doing studies, um, the equipment for this is necessary. And, you know, what is evident in this paper and, and what was evident in putting this together is that we know how many, with, with good accuracy, we know how many overfat or, or obese people there are, we know how many overweight people there are, because those things have been measured for many, many years, but we haven't consistently measured the body fat state with equipment that is reproducible and acceptable. Um, and so we're, we're lacking that. That's why we had to estimate uh, via the scientific evidence uh, how extensive this overfat pandemic is. So Paul, Paul uh, could talk to that, to that issue. Yeah, it's a, it's a good place to pick it up, actually. And, and it takes me back to my, my undergrad studies. I had this, um, I was at the University of British Columbia and uh, in, in Vancouver, and I can remember we had one of these, we had a, had a great um, professor there who was one of the original guys doing a lot of the cadaver studies. And I remember how um, he was, his, his whole PhD just involved, um, you know, four years of um, basically dissecting human cadavers and, um, and, and trying to remove all of the adipose tissue. And I, I can remember his key message in that lecture was the fact that there is only one single um, direct measure um, of of uh, body composition, and that is what he did. The you know the actual the actual removal of it all. That's the only direct um, direct measure. Everything else that we're doing are are estimates. Um, everything else are they're called two component um, or various component models of basically running a regression equation between these other prediction methods and and maybe um, and, you know and something that they would have done um, with 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 a cadaver, so um, it could be you know you could use a skin fold, for example. You take a, a bunch of different um, different sites, and then oh, actually that's triply indirect. I should, I should say um, uh, that we first go to the densitometry uh, method, and that is the underwater weighing that, that Phil described. So we know the different densities of fat versus lean mass um, from the cadaver studies. And then we we um, you know, we underwater weigh ourselves, 
um, you know, take out all of your breath and then um, measure your body body mass. You know, the, the density of lean mass relative to um, uh, relative to fat mass, and then we also know the density of water, and we can do a few, a few equations, and we get a percentage of of the of the body fat from that. So that's the two component model, and then then you go to the three component model. Well, then now you're taking densitometry methods, um, the underwater weighing, and you're comparing that with um, with your skin folds, um, and then uh, you know, and you take those from from uh, two sites. I guess the point is, is there's all we're really just um, we're making estimates. We can only make estimates, with the exception of of the actual um, cadaver measurement. Um, and and it kind of comes back to the to what Phil was saying was at the end of the day, um, the observation method from from the um, from the clinician um, and and your own common sense, I guess, it, it comes to the the simple practical take home stuff um, at the end of the day. Um, it, I, I guess the only the other things I there's there's the dual X-ray absorptometry as well. So that's a very fancy way we can get get a little bit um, better of a marker of that. Yeah, and I think so. To there's kind of sounds like maybe three uh, areas to think about. One is in the research you want uh, you want to go when you're when you're running a study or when you're looking to do uh, research that you're going to be making. Uh, or extrapolating out to uh, have a lot of meaning for a larger population. You want to be as precise as possible. Uh, when you're treating patients, uh, like let's say a one-to-one scenario, doctor to patient or in a clinic, you want to be pretty precise as well. You definitely want to call a spade a spade, but you can also use some of those intangible uh, benefits of being in person, such as does the, you know, like uh, Phil, like you mentioned, are their clothing sizes changing? Um, do they look happier, more energetic? Are they smiling more? Is their handshake more firm? I mean, even uh, experienced coaches will say uh, part of what they do, or it's it's almost whether they know they're doing it or not, is they'll see, um, you know, in team sports scenarios, how much chatter is going on in the locker room it can be an indicator of the fatigue levels generally for the team or, or the motivation um, or the anxiety pre-competition or something. So there's a lot of things you can do that are slightly less measurable but still important. Um, and then from an individual's point of view, um, realize that when you're looking at yourself, being biased and and things like that is is inherent. Um, so it's important to look at the right things and it's also try to keep it simple, but quantifiable preferably. So that's where that waist circumference comes in or clothing sizes and even, but if you get a simple tape measure, that's, um, $2 maybe, um, you know, go around the belly button, like you're saying, Phil, that is something that in general you can't cheat, or at least you can't cheat it too much. Cause if you do an exhale every time, then, <laughs> then, uh, right. Then right. And you, it. and, and you don't want to become obsessed with it, which is what happens, what has happened with the scale. People get up in the morning, they step on the scale and they either get depressed or, or, or not based on the number that they see, you know, forgetting that their body weight, their water content uh, varies throughout the 24-hour period, sometimes uh, quite noticeably. Um, So you don't want to measure your waist every day because you're not going to see changes every day. 
you you could see slight changes every day. Again, like you said, the way you breathe, um, intestinal gas, for example. Um, but once a month, you you see the metabolic effect of body fat in the belly, and and that's uh, that's a real measurement. Yeah, and to isolate that variable even more, like you were just mentioning, and we tell people this type of stuff with HRV as well as if you're if you're measuring it first thing in the morning on a Sunday, for example, then next time you measure it, try to measure it first thing in the morning on a Sunday, just because more than likely right. you'll be doing similar things. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and so, yeah, and uh, Paul, just an, another quick note that you mentioned about the dual energy x-ray absorptiometry, which that's a mouthful, but it's uh, it's referred to as a DEXA scan, uh, you know, in practice. And I think like you said, not everyone's going to have access to that, but it is uh, becoming a little bit more popular, at least in the U.S. There's a company called DexaFit that's opening locations in various cities um, and giving DEXA scans to anyone, um, uh, anyone who is willing to pay, of course. But um, and uh, and just to give a little background, real quick on that is that's commonly used to diagnose osteoporosis and uh, assess risk for that. So if people are kind of Googling around to find a DEXA, um, maybe look for osteoporosis clinic or something and maybe call them and see if they accept walk-in or appointments for um, pay-as-you-go. And it is a little more expensive, so $75 to $200 is about what I've seen it at. Um, Non-invasive takes about 10 minutes, and it, it does do a pretty good job in my experience of showing not only your body fat percentage, but also where that fat is located, such as is it around your organs or less obvious spots. Um, And I'm actually, at the time that this podcast is going live, I have one scheduled for the day after. So um, I'll be going and getting my DEXA done because it's been a couple of years since I've done that. um, Just And that's a good point because, you know, in addition to cost and availability... Um, people need to understand that if they're going to go and do this and get get measured, um, and you know, they need to do it again. They need a follow up evaluation like you're doing. Um, so doing it once is is um, a lot less valuable uh, than saying, okay, I'm going to do it, and then um, you know, a month later, two, three months later, I'm going to I'm going to do it again to see if my program is actually working. Um, so that's very, very important. And again, um, you know, measuring your waist uh, every month is is certainly the cheapest way to go. Definitely. You know, the only thing I was gonna gonna add in was the uh, the other. I don't think we actually went through it, but one of the other indirect measurements that um, that was that was done during all this kind of experimentation stuff on, uh, you know, kind of comparing back to to different component models, back to densitometry was actually the 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 bottom uh, that's your your um, what is it your 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 weight um, divided by your your height in meters squared and that's kind of you know, that that that's the one that really I guess got us in into some of this this uh, a little bit of trouble in in terms of our initial classifications and using the term weight. Yeah, and that's interesting too the the BMI uh, conversation and how that's such a prevalent. 
metric and how it, it can be misleading and in, in a couple of ways. So from what I've learned in general, the top two predictors of death, so uh, from so-called natural states, uh, the number one is loss of muscle strength, or I'm sorry, correlatives. Uh, so it's not the cause necessarily, but uh, correlated with natural death is the loss of muscle strength. And the second one is loss of muscle mass. So in general, for long-term health, you want to have a fair amount of lean muscle mass to kind of offset aging. And that, that can also help with osteoporosis, but that's another discussion. Um, but, and we kind of discussed this a little with sarcopenia. That's not necessarily well reflected in BMI, for example, um, and sarcopenic obesity uh, can, can kind of fudge that number. Um, and on, on, on the flip side, um, you also talk about American football players in the, in the paper. And those, are, those folks are notoriously strong athletes, lots of muscle. Um, and those are also good examples of when BMI may not be appropriate to be a sole determinant of disease risk. So um, under fatness, let's talk a little bit about that because we've talked a lot about over fatness. Um, you know, is under fatness really a prevalent issue and to the world? And if so, who is under fat? Well, the, the, the numbers of underfat people are diminishing because the, the numbers of starvation, the number of, numbers of starving people um, are, is, is diminishing um, around the world. So the underfat population is diminishing. But if we, if we move those individuals who are underfat due to starvation, if we move those aside and look at what's left, we see potentially increasing numbers of underfat people. So that, that underfat population, if, if the starvation numbers level out, which I, I suspect they will soon, because you can only get that down to a certain uh, level, um, we could see the underfat condition starting to increase in numbers. And we already know the overfat numbers are continuing to increase. Then we're going to see this strange situation of underfat and overfat increasing and normal fat individuals diminishing. So back to your question, who's, who's under fat um, uh, who are not in a, in a state of starvation? Um, a lot of them are are individuals who have chronic disease. Um, and we have, as everyone knows, a growing population of elderly, which means we mm -hmm. have a growing number of people who are chronically ill. Right. And we, we, we mentioned sarcopenia, but there's also a later stage condition called cachexia, where both fat and muscle diminish significantly, and cachexia becomes um, a, a very strong factor associated with um, morbidity and mortality. So um, especially more mortality, it's, it's predictive of, of death. Um, it's present in about, I think, a third or 30% of the, the patients who die. Um, uh, and and it's, a, it's a significant concern because um, 
the number, you know, medicine, modern medicine is keeping more people alive. And number one, number two, uh, the aging population is increasing. So those numbers are going to, are going to, um, th those numbers are rising. Uh, and then if we look at the other, um, the other factor associated with the underweight condition, it's people with um, two kinds of disorders. One is uh, those with uh, anorexia, for example, eating people with eating disorders. You don't have to be uh, diagnosed uh, clinically as having anorexia. Um, eating disorders are, uh, I think, very prevalent. I've written about that. The, the numbers of eating disorder individuals is very high. Um, we tend to only pay attention when it's really severe and we say, oh, this person has a diagnosis of anorexia. Um, but those numbers are high. And as the world becomes more westernized, and as we know, the numbers of, of endurance athletes, but all athletes, are growing. Marathon entries are increasing, 10K, 5K races. So we're seeing a lot more people in competitive events, and we're seeing a lot more people who are exercising, not necessarily um, people who, who compete, but they're exercising. And many of these individuals have gone to the extreme to the point where they're obsessed with losing body fat, and they end up being under fat as well. And so um, those are your two main contributors in addition to the, um, to the category of people who are starving. Okay. And yeah, the, on the, the exercise piece is, uh, it kind of comes back to the psychology of all of this and, um, and how when you're on a, uh, refined carbohydrate roller coaster of, of energy where you're getting spikes in blood glucose and crashes, um, that prolonged exercise is one of the only times when somebody can feel kind of a consistently elevated level of energy. Um, when they've kind of been burned out from that uh, refined carbohydrate roller coaster. So then not only are they obsessed with, in some cases, uh, reducing body fat, but it's, they're also just trying to basically compensate for their lack of steady energy throughout the day, um, but not realizing that they're kind of uh, digging their hole deeper, so to speak, um, by not addressing mm -hmm. the underlying issues. Yeah. That's cool, Jason. That's probably exactly what's going on from a psychological perspective in, in those individuals. Yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. It's uh, it's stuff that I could see back when I was a health coach and personal trainer. Is I was working with um, really high performing um, uh, kind of people in in industry, so uh, professionals who work sixty plus hours a week regularly, um, very high performing type A individuals. And they were kind of burning the candle at both ends when it came to not sleeping enough, working too much, and uh, not eating appropriately. And then um, in order to kind of compensate for that, they were trying to exercise as much as possible. And part of it was, yeah, the body composition, um, which also kind of exacerbated the problem. But And the other side of it, too, that I could see, and I, I dove into the research a little on, was that... Um, their cortisol receptors were getting downregulated and, uh, they had to, similar to the way that caffeine works, you had to like take more and more to get the same effect. Um, 
they are doing this daily with cortisol and trying to basically uh, just feel feel energy or just feel anything almost <laughs> um, <laughs> but by increasing exercise. Yep. Yeah, and they're and they're often told to to you know go play a hard game of squash or do you know do a hard workout, do some sprints, um, get your frustration out, you'll feel better. Um, all that does is maintain that vicious cycle, and it's it's really um, it's really what what corporate fitness was all about in the in the early years, and it, and it's one of the reasons why corp, corporate fitness has become a, a disaster um, because they're they're often not helping the individual executive; they're helping the company with the bottom line, and, and they call that success, but. Um, you know, it, it might be good that we have a lot of corporations that have these multi-million dollar fitness centers where nobody goes, <laughs> which is indeed what's happening. Mm-hmm. But it's better that people don't go to them uh, than if they go and run themselves into the ground. I would often say to, to some of the athletes I would see, um, uh, you know, they would say, oh, I, I was a couch potato and I decided to, you know, get on my feet and start working out, blah, blah, blah. A few years later, well, here they are in my office, totally burned out. And I'd say, you know, you you really would have been better off staying as a couch potato <laughs> because what, you, what you've done to your body is, is so much worse. Um, and so, you know, we have to, we, we have to look at the, the, the big picture. Mm-hmm. In this section, Paul cut out a bit, but he covered the fact that many people are turning away from the gym naturally and that the levels of gym memberships are actually starting to level off or even decrease while the level of participation in outdoor sports, especially things like triathlon and obstacle racing, are continuing to skyrocket. Now we resume the discussion. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's so much to that. Like you said, not maybe, maybe to go on this tangent, but, um, is that there's a lot of, uh, you know, intangible benefits to that as well. There's, um, getting, uh, sunlight exposure and, and vitamin D, which can help with circadian rhythm, which then improves sleep. There's a community aspect to a lot of that as opposed to just going and, and being alone on a, uh, treadmill in under fluorescent light um, you know, you can go get dirty in the mud with your friends and actually maybe even improve gut bacteria at the same time. But, uh, and (laughs) so, you know, there's so many intangible pieces to that that are, that are fantastic. Uh, so what I like to do towards the end of the episode is, uh, talk about some of the actionable items that we've discussed here and there throughout the episode. So, Um, you know, for those listening, what could they start asking their doctor or telling their coach, um, you know, that is kind of an underlying message here. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer and and I was my whole career, uh, when I had my clinic, I was a big believer in working myself out of a job, literally. And that involved helping the patient understand how to take care of themselves. I, you know, today I call it user-managed health and fitness. Uh, people come to my website and they're and they're they they're, they're given direction 
based on their individual health and fitness factors. Um, and so I would help patients uh, learn to take care of themselves. And I think it's one way we can resolve our worldwide dilemma, healthcare dilemma. Um, it's for people to take charge of their health, not for governments or insurance companies to, to mandate this or recommend that. Um, so my, my recommendation is number one, take, take charge of your health and fitness. Um, and, and the place to start is to get rid of junk food, like we talked about earlier. And yeah, and when you're speaking to, uh, your doctor or your coach, I mean, just to what you're talking about right there, Phil, is the reason why drug companies advertise on TV is because they realize that consumers will go ask for whatever drug uh, that they saw on TV. Exactly. And it's very effective. They've actually been doing that for decades now. Um, and, and, uh, and it's very effective. Um, my, my comment to health practitioners is to do the same thing. Help, you know, the word doctor means teacher. So as doctors, we need to be better teachers. We need to help patients understand what to do, obviously from a lifestyle standpoint. Um, if, if we're in a emergency situation or, um, or other, um, situations, you know, people don't want to take charge of their health. They want someone who's professional to do it for them. But, but for the most part, people who are in the, the audience, uh, listening to this podcast, um, and, and clinicians, people in the healthcare world can play a big role in this. Uh, a, by, by taking care of their own health, and B, by helping patients take care of their health. Um, and for researchers, um, read this paper, and, and let's start gathering more useful data. BMI is, is, is always going to be around. People are always going to measure BMI, partly because... Um, there's so much data out there, and when you're uh, doing research and you want to compare what you're doing, they, you want to compare your data to something, there's BMI. That's what's available. Um, so that's not going to go away, and, and BMI has some value, but um, let's start gathering uh, more useful data in terms of um, the overfat state so that we can keep moving this, this idea along that we need to... Uh, change the terms we're using. We need to help people uh, look at what the problem is and and not avoid it. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, you are the type that's going to be one that wants to take charge and take action. So do that. Um, be observant of of yourself or others. If you're a if you're a um, a practitioner, search for that um, search for that optimal and uh, and do the things that are going to um, you know uh, turn you back towards that optimal state. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I appreciate it. And so, yeah, I would, again, I would encourage listeners to take control of the situation, um, you know, call a spade a spade where possible. Like Phil mentioned earlier in the episode, though, it doesn't necessarily mean go to your significant other or your relative and say, you know what, you're actually fat. Um, and I've just not been saying that. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily to say that, but, uh, it is just to, um, when you're trying to make measurable change, 
that it's important that you're using the right terminology or at least have the right thing in mind and that you're measuring the right thing um, because then you're bringing awareness to the correct issue versus uh, not necessarily weight or BMI. Um, and so we mentioned that waist circumference with a, a tape measure is a very cheap and effective tool once a month around the same time. Um, calipers I've found, which we didn't really mention much, but uh, just for FYI for folks, they're pretty difficult to be consistent with. Um, and they're so specific to each area of the body, you can miss some of the uh, you know, fat that's in areas that are not easy to pinch with a caliper. Um, and if you do try to, if you do go that route, I would recommend working with a coach or somebody experienced who uses a standardized method every single time. Um, but again, that's, that's a lot of work. Uh, and then the DEXA scan, um, which people can look up online. Uh, a lot of cases, if you're in a major city, you can find one near you. Um, and doing that maybe every six months or something like that, um, might be a good idea if you have the extra cash to get a really accurate picture of, of change guys. So thanks so much. What, what we'll do before we wrap up is, uh, you know, this paper is going live, uh, the day that this podcast is going live. So people can, where can people go check it out? Uh, it's pu published in, um, in frontiers. And uh, yeah, real, real uh, top journal. And um, yeah, it's uh, it is uh, it's open source frontiers in public health. Um, and yeah, we'll have um, hopefully we can um, add a add a link. Yep, yep. yep. We'll have a link yep. in the show we'll have notes. a link in the show notes. It should come up on should come up on Google um, right uh, right away. And we should also acknowledge um, uh, Ivan Rivera as well, who uh, was uh, instrumental in. In assisting with the paper and, and writing the paper, and especially with his uh, his work with the linguistics area. Yeah, he he was uh, he was great. Um, he he's my research assistant, and um, I I started uh, getting him involved, and then uh, we were talking about the terms fat and you know what it means, and I was going to write a little bit about it, and he said, you know, I have a undergraduate degree in linguistics, so I said, oh, great, there you go. Let's let's get some more information on that. So he yeah, he was very helpful. Perfect. And what I'd like to add too is that over the years I've started reading more and more primary research and things and uh, meta analyses and different things myself, which I asked me a decade ago and I never would have known that I would have been doing that. But um, one of the things I really like about this paper specifically too is that there are a lot of charts and things in it. So if people are maybe not uh, as into reading the entire thing, there's definitely some beneficial charts and graphs in there that show percentages of over fatness versus over obesity, uh, uh, over obesity, <laughs> overweightness and obesity, um, versus normal fat, under fat, the progression of over fatness to under fatness, um, increases in death rates from cachexia. There's some good charts in there. So I recommend everybody go give it a look. You will find it published in the journal called Frontiers, and we will also link to it in the show notes as well. You can find out more about Phil Maffetone at philmaffetone.com. And unfortunately, the audio quality on Paul's line didn't do him justice because he has a wealth of knowledge on this subject as well. 
and I apologize and thank you for your patience on all of that. Um, he can be found at plusandprof.com and also in episode six of this podcast. There will be links to both of them in the description on your podcast player. Um, yep, that being said, links to everything we discussed are also in the show notes over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. Feel free to drop a comment over there, and any and all questions will be answered by myself or forwarded to the guests or appropriate person. And I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Um, start calling a spade a spade when it comes to body fat conditions, and and together we can uh, hopefully kind of make a difference in how these issues are addressed. Um, so until next time, this is Jason Moore signing out. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit HRVCourse.com to get access today.